Hey, how's it going? Welcome back to the End Palm Podcast, a new one-on-one show where I sit down with the folks behind some of our favorite games, or maybe the games that are just around the corner. I'm Alex James Kane, author of the Boss Fight Books entry on Star Wars Night Sealed Republic. I've written for places like Polygon, who published my oral history of Morrowind in 2019, for Killscreen, Rolling Stone, and Glixel, Variety, StarWars.com, USA Today, PC Gamer, and Fangoria Magazine. I thought this podcast might be a perfect way to catch up with some of the people I've talked to in years past, meet some very cool new ones, and learn more about the art and craft of making video games. My guest today is Mike Gallo, who is the LucasArts producer on Knights of the Old Republic. Mike's a guy who's worked at a number of places across the industry. Konami, LucasArts, Kabam, on games like The Simpsons and Mission Impossible for DOS in 1991, Batman the Animated Series for the Game Boy, Metal Gear Solid and Silent Hill, then Star Wars Episode I The Phantom Menace in 1999, Star Wars Demolition, Obi-Wan on the original Xbox, KOTOR in 03, KOTOR 2 a year later, Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith, the short-lived Star Wars Uprising, and Guardians of the Galaxy, the Telltale series. He's also a great Destiny 2 player who's carried my ass to the lighthouse three or four times, and he's a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, If you happen to read my book on the making of KOTOR a few years back, he was one of the most prominent voices in that. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Here's me talking to Mike again. But yeah, so you, uh, I pulled you up on Moby Games again, because I hadn't really, you know, when we talked, it was mostly KOTOR for like two hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, you worked on Mission Impossible, uh, like the DOS game. Yeah, way back, dude. (laughs) Yeah, way back. I barely remember that game, to be honest. Um, That was QA? Yeah, so Konami back in the day, that was actually my second second job in games, and it was I was hired as a beta tester. And at the time, it was uh, because Konami US had signed all these publishing deals for PC games. So that was you know Windows. Uh, back in the day, it was you know two eighty six and three eighty six machines were the the things we tested stuff on. But Windows, Commodore sixty four. Uh, Amiga, Atari ST, like all of that kind of mid to late 80s uh, hardware, you know, so there was just and there was just a ton of projects and Mission Impossible was one of those things. So that's a that's definitely a deep cut. Yeah. So I saw something about customer support for TurboGrafx-16. Was that kind of like your sort of halfway step into the door of the industry that that job or? I mean, that was the step. So that was the very first, you know, game, video game industry related job I had. Um, And it was because NEC had their U.S. headquarters, I believe, uh, were in Wood, it was in Wooddale, Illinois, which is suburb of Chicago. And uh, that was where they did all their customer support work, um, all that, all that good stuff. And I, it was, it's one of those moments that I look back on because it was a perfect, it was, you know, luck and timing. I was outside having a catch with a buddy of mine. I was 17 years old. He still lived at home, all this stuff. And a friend of mine from down the street 
like was driving by. I was like, Hey, you know, what's going on? And we chatted for a few minutes. I'm like, where are you off to? He's like, Oh, I'm going to work. I work as a customer support guy at NEC on video game stuff. I'm like, I'm like, really? Because we used to that, you know, growing up together, we played video games whenever it was bad weather. We couldn't go outside video games. Like it was always part of our agenda. Um, and I'm like, dude, I'm like, give me, bring me a, bring me an application. <laughs> yeah. And you know, six hours later or whatever, when he came back, he stopped by and dropped off the application and I gave it to him. I, you know, filled it out and went, walked over to his house later that night and then, uh, had an interview there. And then the rest is history. I started on the midday shift, which they desperately needed people for. And that was it. And it was customer support for, it was, it was like the Nintendo hotline, but for turbo graphics. So it was game help more than customer service. I mean, you had kind of that, um, idealized eighties, uh, right. Like, so you, you're what you're like 15 when like the Nintendo comes out, the NES, right. Something like that. Oh no, no, no. It was 85. So I was only, I was 13 or 14, 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about like the later, the Mario game, like the sequels probably is where I was getting that number from. Um, but you uh, you mentioned once before like that Death Star board game. You remember that story? Like, oh. so that was was that like the first game you ever got as a kid? Or yeah, I think um, because it was that that period where you know Star Wars came out, it blew up in '77, but there were no toys, and Kenner has, well, I guess it was Kenner at the time had the rights to do all of this stuff so they did like the they they published all the puzzles and things like that and that and that death star board game was one of the very first like pieces of star wars merchandise i remember getting and it was i don't know how good of a game it was i couldn't tell you i don't remember at all but yeah but that was the first thing it was they yeah, they just had they had to crank out something to capitalize on it as quickly as they could before they had toys ready. Nice. So, I mean, what games do you remember playing with your friends? Was it was it NES stuff like Mario mm. Three and? Yeah, we uh, you know we were all you know just kids, so the only money we made was from like mowing lawns and odd jobs here and there. So we had to you know we kind of like it was me and my my buddy and his brother so it was the three of us kind of pooled our money together and we bought we bought an NES with the Robbie robot thing the gyroscope set and then a couple games and like we kind of we kind of would trade it every couple weeks we would trade it over to one other's house so you know we we would play together all the time but you know in the early mornings and late evenings you know whoever had it for that week got to play a ton of games and stuff. So that it was, it was, that was kind of a strange thing because, um, Commodore, you know, the, I think my first game system, you know, Pong, you know, the Sears telesystem or whatever Pong, but then the next game system I got was a ColecoVision, which I lobbied for, for a long time because I never had an Atari, uh, 2600 or anything. So I lobbied for the ColecoVision had that and played, you know, I think I owned 10 or 11 games for that in its entire life and just played them to death. 
Um, and then the NES, the NES thing kind of pooling our money together. But I also had a Commodore 64 at the time, which is what got me through some of those, the time between the ColecoVision and the, and the NES thing was the Commodore 64. So you, uh, you're an Illinois guy. I'm an Illinois guy, but you're up from by Chicago, like Schaumburg, something like that. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, grew up in Schaumburg, which is, you know, a Northwest suburb of Chicago. Sometimes featured very prominently in Onion articles about uh, <laughs> the suburb of Chicago and just how it's basically strip mall after strip mall, um, which yeah. was very much my experience there. Um, but it was it was good because Chicago was a one time a very central hub for a lot of the coin op game makers. So like most a lot of a lot of the manufacturers that they didn't have like a a full-blown office there had a lot of shipping and receiving that was done there because chicago is such a central location uh, for the rail yards and stuff and shipping out giant pinball machines and 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 all that uh, made sense from chicago but konami taito data east uh gottlieb obviously bally midway like a lot of those well-known game companies had offices in Chicago and NEC was out there uh, and they used to do tons of, they used to be much bigger in uh, consumer electronics and then went into the video game side, uh, mostly fueled from Japan. And then uh, Konami had a headquarters out there and that kind of, you know, that kind of led into the, the next you know, from going from NEC to Konami um, was again just another thing of like, you know, the marketing team at at uh, at NEC. I had a lot of good back and forth with them because they they looked at me as, you know, there was a few guys on that middle day shift uh, that they would always come to to like evaluate games and take a look at stuff that they were working on and give them feedback. We were kind of their own little mini uh, focus group, right? So they would they would often spent a lot of time just talking to us about stuff. And one of those guys went to Konami and he's like, Hey, we need a tester here. You'd be great. Come over here and do this. And that's kind of how I made my jump from NEC to, to Konami. I was thinking about this last night, uh, thinking about like, you know, those times back at NEC and, and there's a few, a few moments where I think about some games that we were evaluating and and looking at, one of them was Bomberman and Bomberman on the Turbo Graphics was the first, the first one, I think. And no one like the marketing team really didn't get it because it was just so simple. It was, you know, a single screen and, and all this stuff. And it was like, yeah, but it was multiplayer. And that was one of the things that the Turbo Graphics. It was a weird thing that it only you had to have a multi-tap to play with more than one player in the turbo graphics. But when you had the multi-tap, you could play with five players and Bomberman supported it. And it was one of the few games. There were a few games like Dungeon Explorer and Bomberman were they, the, the two ones I remember from launch time period that supported like five players. But they were a hoot. It was a hoot. <laughs> to play those games with five people and and playing Bomberman with with five players is great. And we were uh, another good friend of mine was trying to push 
the marketing team, they're like, you should, this should be the game that we use to sell the multi-tap, like bundle it with the multi-tap. It's a party game, you know, play with your friends. And I don't know if there was ever anything that was done around Bomberman and the multi-tap, but it was kind of a match made in heaven. And, and I think it was really because of that 12 to four shift at uh, NEC, all of us playing that game and just having a great time is what kind of made them bring over Bomberman. I don't know if they were going to bring it over uh, to the U.S. Uh, so I like to think we had a little, a little part in that and making, making that happen. So. Yeah. I remember it coming out on the 64 and like, I had never heard of it uh, at that stage, but then it was just something to grab at family video and try. And this N64 one was so much fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good. It was good stuff. That was, that was a good time. A simpler time. I actually still, there are still two or three people uh, from that Turbo Graphics team that I still chat with occasionally. Still kind of in the the games and tech orbit, or are they doing other stuff? Two of those guys are still more game centric, and uh, you know, one guy has been working as a designer on many games from because again, Chicago still has uh, maybe not as much as it used to, but it still has a game development community. So there's still some some developers out there uh, and he's he's been working out there doing that for some ever since uh, another guy that was uh, worked for Tiger Electronics, which had his headquarters out there as well. Uh, and they, you know, they did all those little, um, you know, LCD handheld things and stuff like that. So nice. And your parents, like, are they excited when you, you start to, you're like, I'm going to go into video games and be a tester. Is that, uh, <laughs> were they thrilled about this or were they kind of like uh, very working class, like pragmatic people or how'd that go? Well, it was kind of mixed. Uh, and I don't think that, I don't think my dad really understood what it was I was doing because he just looked at it as playing games. Right. Uh, you know, so there was early on, you know, I would, and, you know, being a young kid and liking games anyway, I would bring work home all the time. Um, you know, I'd bring home a super Nintendo or bring home, I, you know, bring home my work computer. Uh, and sometimes I was just, uh, doing it to, you know, play some stuff that I wanted to play that I couldn't get to otherwise. But most of the time, I mean, I would bring home, you know, early burns of, you know, Contra and Castle, Contra three and Castlevania four and stuff like that and hook it up to my better TV at home and, you know, test it and you know write down bugs and stuff like that while i was at home but i was really just doing it to enjoy it and explore and you know all of those dev builds had you know level selects and you know you could play the music and sound effects without going into levels and stuff like that so a lot of cool little things like that and you know at the time even though i knew they were dev tools it was still cool to me it was still so new to me that was like oh this is so cool to be able to like just pick a level and go play it or see the stuff that's in development because there was tons of parts of the game that were weren't finished and you could mess around and play with it and break things and just it was just a lot of fun my dad did not my dad really didn't get it until i told them that i was going to move to california to continue working Mm. uh and i think it was that moment where it clicked of like 
oh, this is yeah. a job slash career. This is actually something that that he can do. And my dad was, uh, it, it, it's you know one of the first times where I I, I think he was you know because he was old school. It was hard to it was hard to make him happy and proud and all that stuff. And you know it was one of those things. He he he. I drove from Chicago to California, and he insisted on driving with me. So you know we mm. got to spend three or four days driving across the plains <laughs> to, to get to to get to california and uh it was good it was a good time yeah did you work uncredited on symphony of the night is that right i think i'm actually credited in that i think that was one okay. of the few so let, let's talk about symphony of the night symphony of the night is a is a good there's a uh, an interesting story there um and uh, it's one of those games that you know i look back on as you know it, it's 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 great i i was super happy that people loved that game as much as we did internally um it was very it was very strange because when we got we used to so we used to get packages like it was so great to get the the package from Japan would come in, you know, and it would always go to one of our, uh, one of the guys in the office who, uh, he was a Japanese employee that was from the Kabam or from the Konami office in Japan, but he was the point of contact for all of the builds and everything that we would get. And like, you know, Monday morning or sometimes whenever we'd get the package, you know, or he'd come over <laughs> into the, we, I, I sat in this huge, test pit because i had you know 30 different machines hooked up to monitors so i had like one of the biggest cubicles in the entire building and he would come over and be like oh it you know what's what's in this what's in the package today and you know he he gave me a he's like this is uh the new castlevania game i'm like okay you know and this was um you know playstation uh playstation one so I'm like, this is gonna be great, you know. Fire it up, and uh, soon after, like the you know the a couple of the marketing guys like heard that I that we had the the new Castlevania game, so they were like standing over my shoulder, and fired up, and it's like 2D, mm. and they were like, Ugh. they like were disgusted and just left <laughs> because it was PlayStation one. So everything was 3d, 3d, 3d. That was what everyone wanted. And I was like, well, you know, all right, cool. It looks awesome. The the animation's great. Let's, you know, keep digging into this. And I I think the first day I sat there and messed around with that build until like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And, you know, I'd written down a bunch of things and took a bunch of notes and some bugs and stuff like that. And then the next day, the timelines here may be fuzzy because this is almost 30 years ago. But the next day, I remember like, I'm like, guys, you gotta see this. <laughs> so there was a couple of bosses in that game that used some 3D stuff. Um, and there, you know, there was just a few things like that. But I'm like, I'm like, look at the map. I'm like, this is the map. I hadn't yet gotten to the point in my playthrough or discovery of it where, you know, we got everything, got the castle to flip upside down. 
hadn't gotten to that point yet. So after the first day or so, you know, just like, look at all that, like, it's huge. This is uh, like, this is awesome. Like so far, this is great. The music that I've heard so far is amazing. Like all of this stuff and just trying to, you know, kind of selling them. And they were like, okay, all right. All right. Well, you know, you know, let us know. And then, you know, later on, eventually I'm like, what the heck just happened? I can't even remember in my mind what the transition was in the game to get to that upside down world or if i found it through like a level select or something in the build uh to do that and i just was like the map is upside down wait what <laughs> and then you know you see your percentage going past 100 percent. i'm like this thing is like double the size <laughs> and, you know i brought him back in and like look at this um so it was another one of the i, I feel like you know i was thinking about like the Bomberman story earlier, and then this Castlevania story of like really selling the internal folks on this game. Because again, it was, it was almost one of those things that was like instantly dismissed because it wasn't 3d um, and had to go through this like, Hey guys, like this is really, really cool. You should check this out. And, you know, eventually they were totally on board because they saw all the stuff that was in that game and how big it was. And, and it was Castlevania. It was one of our, you know, Konami's main IPs. You know, I think at the time it was Contra and Castlevania and, you know, turtles, of course, but uh, you know, this was one of the original IPs. So they were, they got behind it and blew it out for, for launch. The one thing that I can 100% say I contributed to in Castlevania was I was like, the note to the team in Japan was, can you please add a music select? A lot of games, you know, at the time you, you, they'd have a music select somewhere on one of the menus or in the settings where you could just play the tracks on the disc Mm. and just, you know, play the music. And uh, they came back and said, yes, but we're going to put it in the library. So the U.S. version has that music selection in the library, which wasn't in. I don't, maybe they put it in the Japanese release as well, but I don't think it was. I think that was added for the U.S. release. So that's the one thing I can say I contributed to, besides you know some bugs here and there. But the that was my one contribution that was uh, added into the Castlevania. That's awesome. Yeah, imagine like at that point, most games had kind of like been experimenting with 3D at the time. Like, uh, and then you have this one that's sort of an evolution of like the Super Nintendo game, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now it's sort of remembered as like if you're going to play a Castlevania game, Symphony of the Night is often the one that people recommend, or if not the original, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love that that game is included in the same breath you know as metroidvania right like as that kind of subgenre of games um because it was it was just yeah it was so much fun to play through that thing you also worked on metal gear solid and silent hill two uh little known cult classics how did those go metal gear solid man oh man again this is now california uh, Konami. So, uh, you know, so I'm in, I'm in California and, and same, same type of deal. Uh, one of the guys, uh, comes over and he's like, Hey, we, I, I have a metal gear build. 
And again, it was one of those very early, you know, very early things. Not a lot of the story was in there at the time or that you could find, but it was just like playing through. It was the original demo. If you remember the original demo, uh, that was one of the the bits that we had was we had kind of the demo disc uh, in development version and then kind of the full dev version of the game. And it was another one of those things, you know, that demo is what, 20 minutes, 15 minutes. We played through it a dozen times just to check out every single thing we could, every single, you know, menu and interaction that we could have in that thing. We went through it like, again, it was like kind of all night. Me and uh, another colleague sat there and played it just for hours. Um, the throughout the development of that thing, I got a chance to go to, uh, we, we would travel to Japan maybe once a year for, for folks on my level. Like, uh, they would, they would have folks go out to talk about the upcoming lineup of games and and things like that. And on that, one of those trips, we got to go to KCAJ and met with Kojima and talked to the team and, uh, you know, just got to see what they were working on in the studio. Uh, you know, I got to see the, there's this, I, I'm pretty sure this is a famous story or a public story about like how they used Lego to kind of set up some of the mission. They did some of their mission design and prototypes in Lego, uh, just, just, just to get an idea of the 3d space. And of course, Kojima is a huge Lego fanatic anyway, mm. but uh, got to see some of that stuff and see some of the, I remember when I was there, there a few of the guys were working on the, the end sequence of metal gear with the, the, uh, the Jeep escape uh, and seeing that kind of in a very early rough development stage. The main purpose of that discussion um, I think was Kojima really wanted to make sure that we got some great talent for the VO. So we had a, you know, we had a couple of, I, I wasn't super involved in it other than just trying to help coordinate things, but we had a, one of the guys at the Japanese office was a native English speaker that spoke great Japanese, but he was part of the translation team translating the stuff from Japanese to English for Metal Gear. and trying to hold hold all of that stuff that was part of the story and that was the key vision of of Kojima but then you know make make sure that the things worked right uh you know for the English audience um, yeah. and he had a he had a huge part uh in making you know making metal gear what it was i think in in that process and then those like he him and i'm not sure if there was many other folks they were involved in getting all of the talent for the US VO work, getting the studio in LA and getting all that stuff lined up and, you know, hiring the, 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 at the time hiring the casting director and I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but she is a legendary uh, voice director in LA. Uh, she's done Hanna-Barbera cartoons and video game work, but she was who we hired. And 
I remember I was, I got to go to the studio for a couple days and I just remember sitting there cause I was really just there to observe mm-hmm. and let everybody else do their, do their work. And it was the first time I'd ever seen this environment. And, you know, we had, we had all of the, we had video of all of the cutscenes in the game. So they were, you know, they were doing VO against the cutscenes in the studio. And then of course, you know, just the massive script that they had, but just seeing the voice director and seeing her work through this stuff was awesome. Like it was, I'd never experienced anything like it before. It was just like, holy cow, this is amazing. Um, Again, I'm still in a stage in my career where I'm geeking out about some of this stuff because it's so cool to see this thing happen. That first time, you know, first time you do anything new like that is, is just, I mean, I still, I do still take this stuff in as, you know, it's a bit of wonder and magic and, and just seeing it come together was, was awesome. And, you know, I mean, David Hayter was the original you know, the original voice of solid snake for many of the, many of the games. They also did all, they did all that work as non-union. And when, as the previews and stuff started hitting, I think a few of them realized how huge it was going to be. And I, I will never forget the day. It's like, I, I, I gotta believe it's, you know, the summer of the year that Metal Gear came out. And my phone rings at the office and it's David Hader. And I was like, Oh, Hey, you know, how, how's, what's the, how's things going on? And he starts just talking to me. He's like, he goes, Hey, I want to ask that. Um, I know the contract we signed and everything we did was that we were going to have, you know, pseudonyms, but he's like, I want my name in the game. I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm like, yeah, sure. Let me, I'll, I'll, you know, send, I think we actually had email at that point. So I'm like, let me send an email, <laughs> you know, let me communicate to, to the team and tell them, I'm like, I'm sure that they can accommodate that, you know, no promises, but I'll, I'll look into it and sent an email and they were, I think they were super happy to, to do it. So I think if, I think he's the only one of the voice cast that, that his real name is in the game, at least, at least initially. Did you also know that the first pressings of metal gear are kind of, I want to say it was still like, half a million of them went out like this, but there was a legal issue that needed to be addressed in that game. So they had to, all it was, was the, the end screen of the game that gave you all your stats for the game. It was set over a, a gun, like on a table and the gun, you could clearly see the manufacturer markings on the gun. Ah, yeah. So they had to just go in and Photoshop them out. And then, I mean, it was still, I think it was virtually the same screen, but just with the the gun manufacturer name scratched out. Nice. So those are probably collector's editions that uh, people don't realize or if they still are floating out there. I'm pretty sure that you could tell. I'm sure that the uh, like serial number on the disc or whatever has a revision number on it. So you could probably tell that way, but, but uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's safe to talk about this stuff. Now it's 20, 25 years old, right? If we know about it, then the people who are serious, like game collectors definitely know about this. I would imagine I bet you they do. I bet you they do. I clicked over to IMDB and I think the person you were talking about is Chris Zimmerman. Oh, so she, yeah. yeah. It is. She worked on the Smurfs, Paddington Bear, 
uh, the Bill and Ted cartoon, Scooby-Doo, Yogi Bear, like all that stuff that like from our childhoods and Tom and Jerry, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So Chris, Chris and, and I've gotten to work with two of the best voice directors in, in the game. Chris Zimmerman and then uh, Dara O'Farrell from from LucasArts. Uh, like he is one of those names that if you've been around games for a little bit, you probably know his name. Yeah, when I was writing the book, uh, I basically tried really hard to fact check. I think that Dara is credited on more Star Wars video games than any human being outside of George Lucas. And I, I don't even think it's close. I think Hayden Blackman is like behind him with like 50. And then Dara is like, you know, 250. Yeah. 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 Obviously, uh, because anything that went through LucasArts for that period of time that he was there, which was 20 years or something, he, he worked on it. The voice and audio department. My goodness. So many great folks that came out of that that have gone on to do like do amazing things. So didn't you very briefly work with a team? I want to say like big ape. Is that, mm-hmm. was that you? Yeah. Yeah. And then before you went to Lucas. So that, that story is at Konami. Uh, we, we were trying to get a relationship with LucasArts because LucasArts, all of the games that LucasArts made whether it was completely internal or some of the things they worked with sculptured software on, they had other publishers. So like JVC was one of the publishers for their, some of their NES games and their super NES games. And Konami was trying to get this relationship with them. And basically they kind of, I think that LucasArts gave the good stuff to the folks that they had worked with previously. So the, the star Wars games at the time, uh, but they let Konami, we signed a deal with them to get Zombies, Ate My Neighbors, and Metal Warriors. And Zombies, they were both pretty good games on the Super Nintendo. And then uh, Zombies was on both Sega and, uh, and Super Nintendo. And Zombies was like a huge blowout. We, they did tons of marketing against it. They did all this stuff and I think it just fell flat and the game did not sell well at all. <laughs> they way overestimated how much they needed to manufacture. And it was one of those, you know, it was, it was the point in the industry was really hard because it was all physical goods and it was chip based. So the man, the lead times on the manufacturing for that stuff at the time, like it was turbo graphics was way worse. It was like six months at turbo graphics, I think, but it was still three months from the time the stuff got manufactured and got put on a boat and shipped over and the pre-order culture wasn't there yet at that time. So that, and that's a metric that a lot of places, it's probably much harder now, but there was a time where that pre-order metric was used to like, how many do we need to order? How much do we have to manufacture? And uh, they would build a lot of their models off that. I'm sure that that data still factors in somewhat, but it's probably not the same. We ordered huge orders for zombies and i remember when it all came in it was like our because the office i worked in was also the warehouse uh, and main shipping office rows upon rows of pallets stacked 
with, I think I want to say like each pallet, you know, held X number of cases and because it was like half a million units for each platform and just rows upon rows stacked three or four high in the warehouse. And then nobody bought it and nobody wanted it and it got discounted. I mean, that game was down to five bucks, I think, within just a couple of months. And maybe that time frame is is off, but man, it was deeply discounted. Yeah. Um, but the team that worked, it was all they were all LucasArts folks. It was um, can I name names? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Mike Ebert and Dean Sharp. They were the project leads, basically, on zombies and then on Metal Warriors, and. I was the one that worked with them because I was pretty much the only one there that was their point of contact. So, you know, I'd help you know them go through whatever legal stuff they needed to go through and, uh, you know, do the submissions and all of that stuff for them and, and, and Konami. And when Konami had moved, when we had moved out to California, um, it was another one of those things where I got a call from, I think it was Mike Ebert called me up. And he's like, Hey, uh, we really need, we need someone to come help us on. This was after they had split off and formed big eight and like, Hey, we need someone to come help us on uh secret game we're making. And it's like, Oh, that secret game was star Wars, the Phantom Menace. So it was the movie, the, the game adaptation of the movie. And since I was in California, it was a much easier sell because I didn't have to, they didn't have to pay relocation costs and all that stuff. So uh, I went and interviewed at LucasArts and uh, got the job. So that was kind of like, again, it was, it's another one of those connections, right? Like I went, you know, that connection of my, my buddy that worked in NEC and then I got a job there and then there was you know, a marketing guy in NEC that really liked me and I moved to Konami and then I worked with some folks at Konami that liked me and liked the work I did and was able to, to move to, to LucasArts to do that stuff. And that was a scary leap because, you know, I had moved out to California and I had moved out there with Konami, but I was like, this is it. Like, this is the thing I've wanted to do. You know, I, I want to go like LucasArts for me was kind of the holy grail of everything because it was all of my passions. It was video games, Star Wars, and then there was the movie side of it. I think the drive was like an hour from where I lived in traffic. And I remember getting home and I had a message on my, I had a message on my answering machine at home offering me the job and I nearly jumped through the ceiling. <laughs> These days, Lucasfilm Games is like this tiny little, uh, I don't know how many people it is, but it, it's, it's relatively this small little corner of uh, like the Presidio office, I believe, you know, kind of where like ILM's like businesses and mm-hmm. things like that. But um, back then it was what? It was like its own huge office building that was LucasArts and then they collaborated with ILM, but they're very separate, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, LucasArts was in a building you know about 15 minutes down the road from skywalker ranch um and our building was mostly i think we had two or three floors two floors and it was mostly lucas arts 
So all of the production, it was, but it was everything. It was um, game production, game dev, um, legal sales, marketing, everything was in that office. And then we also had Lucas Learning in that same space. And and then uh, THX was in our in our space as well. And it was pretty much like the entire first floor was us. And then we had the downstairs area. And then we eventually took over this John Malkovich uh, level of the of the building. We used to call it that because it was it was like a half floor. <laughs> there was a special button on the elevator that was like floor three point five. The back door of the elevator would open up, and there was like four stairs that went down. It was very strange. So you get there, and like, who's your sort of uh, your manager, or who hired you? Like, who are you dealing with in mm. the like early stage? My my first boss there was Camilla, uh, Camilla uh, Martin, and she was the head of the production department. And there was one, two, three, four, five. There was probably eight or ten of us that were internal production, so managing and working with the internal teams. External production for those groups that were working with any external devs that we had, which I was technically one of those um and then the localization team we worked really closely with them uh, because they they were in our building but we worked very closely with that group and we kind of i think we all we kind of sat near where the president was so like i remember the area where i sat and like on one end of my like my boss kind of sat in the middle and then i had the president sitting president lucas sitting you know a few rows down and then the head of the studio had sitting a few rows to the opposite side. Uh, so it was kind of surrounded. And I remember I was hired specifically to work on the PC version of the Phantom Menace game. But very shortly after I started, uh, the person that was working on the PlayStation port had to, there was some reason that she had to step away, I think, you know, paternity, maternity leave or, or something. Uh, and she had to step away. So they're like, Hey, can you, can you, uh, manage <laughs> Boy, this is going to be, this is some dirty laundry story here. So they're like, Hey, can you, uh, take over the PlayStation port? Here you go. See you later. And like, <laughs> I'm like, what did I just get into? So it was one of those things where back in the day, LucasArts was huge on PC, all the TIE fighter games, X-Wing versus TIE fighter, all that, you know, all that stuff. Sorry, I should say all the X-Wing games, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, TIE Fighter, like Monkey Island, like all that. PC was the bread and butter. I now, you know, years on, it didn't hit me right then, but years on, I'd realized that what had happened was this was right when pre-order stuff was starting. So pre-orders were a thing at this point, basically. And the sales team was like, we have over a million pre-orders of the PlayStation version. <laughs> so the, the, the console version was outpacing PC, uh, the PC counterpart. So they basically realized that they didn't know where the PlayStation port was. So they needed someone to dig in and find out what the hell was going on with it because it was already, it was poised to be one of the biggest releases that they've ever had. So 
I'm like, well, I know the the big ape team isn't working on it. Who's working on it? And uh, it's like, oh, uh, Nick. I'm like, Nick? I'm like, there's one guy? There's <laughs> one guy working on it? He's like, ah, there's more than one guy, but go talk to Nick. I'm like, okay. So I go talk to Nick. <laughs> yeah, there was more than one guy. There were two guys. And they shared an office, and they were both engineers. Uh, and they were one guy was really kind of uh, the the lead PlayStation like architect to port over the PC code. The other guy was more on the rendering side and making sure that we could actually display what we needed to display <laughs> in the in the game. Uh, so he was, you know, crunching all those numbers. Well, the PC game was coming in super hot, so. Like they hadn't locked code yet. They hadn't really locked anything down yet. And this is like getting on March at this point of 99. So the game is supposed to come out in May and PC, you know, you could go up until the last minute because your, your manufacturing times were quick. You didn't have to go through approval process, right? Like you just went through your QA process and you could put it out. But so the first couple of days I worked on the PlayStation game, I went and told my boss, I go, Hey, uh, so here's, you know, here's my kind of top line assessment of this. And, uh, there's no way that this game is shipping in May. And they're like, well, it has to, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, well, we don't have a locked version of the game. The game barely can run on the PlayStation at the moment. We also have two guys and I'm like, we need, who like what other headcount do we have? And you know, I'm like, you want me to do an assessment of what we need to do this? Uh that that's a different, you know, that's a different discussion. But I don't even know what the headcount is because I'd only been, you know, working on it. I'd only been working on it for a few hours. So we we finally it was so good after after a couple of weeks, finally come up with a plan. But during that two weeks, I I mean, so I've been at the company for two months. During that two weeks, I got fired. 13 times or whatever, because every time the production head would see me in the hallways, he'd be like, Hey, how's things going on that? It better ship in May. I'm like, well, you know, you're fired. I'm like, and he was, you know, it was joking, but it was really weird. Like it was one of those moments of like, Jesus Christ, like, what am I going to do? I've only been here for, you know, two months. What do you, what do you want? So we came up with a plan of attack, but it was, there were so many problems with the the way the levels were authored on PC, porting them to PlayStation was a problem. So we needed, we basically had three of the main level designers from Big Ape. We set them up in the office near the engineers, you know, gave them their own space and all that stuff. And they they just came in and just cranked through you know, fixing all of the issues in the levels on Phantom Menace and making sure that there wasn't out of bounds problems in every single corner. Like literally there was a point where, you know, QA, like you could jump, if you jumped into any corner in the game, you could fall out of it within two or three seconds of jumping in the corner being like, so like, it was just, it was just a very, you know, it was very uh, unstable uh, in that respect, but it just, it just needed that, kind of uh you know the support of the guys that built the levels for pc to come in and help us 
address all those issues and still make it performant as good as, as much as we could on, on PlayStation. So that team literally was, it was the port of the play of the PC version, but it was three engineers and three or four level designers like did the main, the bulk of the work to get that thing over to PlayStation. We had to go through and reset the launch date. So the PC version shipped with, you know, the movie, uh, I think it was like a week before the film came out was when the game shipped. And then that PlayStation version came out in September of that year uh, and still did, still did well, but it was just one of those things where there was just shipping it in May was an impossibility. It's funny how many, how many games like tie into the Phantom Menace. Cause you had like racer, which is probably the one that like sort of quote unquote did the best. It's certainly like, you know, fondly remembered. Yep. And then you had like just all these like Jedi power battles and battle for Naboo. And then, uh, you worked on Obi-Wan, uh, which is one of my like all time favorite star Wars games from sort of the, what beginning of the Xbox era yeah, was yeah. that sort of your. So you, you did some, some time like writing manuals and stuff. I imagine that was sort of your, your little break from producing or how does that feel? It was just one of those things that I, I, I mean, look, I don't want to take credit for writing them because we had writers there. Uh, I did like the, I think I, I might have a manual writing credit on like rogue squadron three or something like that. Uh, and maybe, a, maybe a couple other ones as well, but it was the manuals would get distributed for, um, you know, for review by everybody, but there were so many people that were always so busy, you know, trying to do all of the other stuff that to really do a thorough job going through the manuals, you needed, you needed to spend some, some time and effort. And I think, you know, there was a moment, there were moments where I had that time to do that and spend the extra time to make sure I would go through the manuals and, you know, edit them as best I could and rewrite certain parts that, you know, didn't make sense. And I would spend a lot of time working with our internal manual writer and sit down with her and like go through and sit with her at her Mac and, you know, make the changes with her or just watch her make the changes and make sure that we were like, you know, the wording was correct and everything else. Because, you know, at the time, I mean, that was the man- manuals are still a huge part of it back then, right? Like you still had to have a really good manual that shipped with the game. And like, you know, I remember KOTOR, you know, we had a spiral bound gigantic manual that shipped with that thing. And, uh, you know, it just, it was not an insignificant part of the job at the time was making sure that that stuff was as accurate as it could be. You know, my, my, I think a lot of production minded folks are like, this is just what, like, what, what do we have to do to help ship it? I mean, there were, you know, there were, I'm sure there were other people that you know, stepped in and helped do some other things in, you know, with the audio teams or with, uh, or with, you know, the manuals and stuff like that. It was just, it was one of those things that I just, I enjoyed doing and trying to get it as, as good as I could, because it was also part of what I did at, at Konami. So I was kind of used to doing it. That was, you know, I would take all the manual screenshots and make sure that the screenshots made sense for what was being described in the manual. And I tried to always put like, hidden clues in some of those screenshots sometimes too like the oh hey here's where you save your game and you can name the save game and i would usually try to make some dorky save game name there and stuff like that i think the first i think the first credit that sergeant angry got was in star wars obi-wan actually i put i put sergeant angry as an alias in the special thanks of obi-wan 
so that was you started using that that nickname in what multiplayer stuff or arcade games or uh, i started using it in uh counter-strike we lucas arts had a obviously there's a ton of folks there that played games we would play counter-strike or quake uh after work every night like every night there would be a group of 30 to 60 people that would be jumping in and playing games you know we had one of our one of our engineers like set up a you know he got an older pc that he set up to be our server for counter-strike so we had our own internal servers and stuff like that and and we would play Counter-Strike for hours after after work was done. But Sergeant Angry started then. Sergeant Angry started because of LucasArts, actually. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, I, can, I can tell you that story if you want to hear that. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the, the Sergeant Angry story was my, my old alias was BFM66 is what I went by. I'm giving away so much. Uh, BFM66 <laughs> my, was my kind of multiplayer name. And I, I got, I gave myself the Sergeant Angry nickname because I got in trouble. I got reported by some of the marketing team because I guess my, my feedback and my attitude was too abrasive <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I think a lot of it was just being young. Uh, but there was also part of it that was, you know, I had a Chicago attitude in California and my Chicago attitude was basically like, this is stupid. Why don't you fix that? You know, and, and, (laughs) and I didn't think that that was a bad bit of feedback to give somebody, but other people did. Uh, so I, I basically got in trouble. Uh, I had to go talk to the president. The president was like, you know, you come across as, you know, pretty angry and abrasive sometimes. And, and, uh, you know, and I, I taught, we talked a little bit about the Chicago attitude and approach. And, um, it was an interesting moment because, I had to, you know, moving to California is one of the best things I ever did for my career, but just for my, my view of the world, right. Um, just getting a different perspective from what I'd been in, in the Midwest and in Chicago. Um, so it was great to, it was great to get that feedback, but that was Sergeant angry was born on that day in 1999. So amazing. (laughs) Yeah, there is kind of a stereotype about Chicago. I read like Bob Odenkirk's memoir and, you know, he talks about kind of a similar thing of just being like, you know, I'm from Chicago. Of course, I'm like an angry asshole, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, yeah, it is kind of like Midwesterners are grumpy. And then and then Chicago City people have their own kind of flavor yeah. of uh, I've I've talked to people in, in New York and, you know, the, there's a similar kind of like uh, cut the bullshit kind of attitude <laughs> yeah, with people. Yeah. And then you talk to Californians and they're like, well, I just got done doing yoga and uh, <laughs> I'm the happiest person you've ever met. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, damn, yeah. I, I got to get out there on the <laughs> West Coast. But you're you're in Austin, Texas now, right? Which is kind of like. A miniature LA, would you say? Is that like an accurate stereotype that I have in my head or no? No, 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 not at all. Um, I mean, maybe some people might describe it that way from from my perspective. You know, there is a lot of cool things to do out here. It's not like LA or Chicago or New York. Um, It's, it is a... It's still, I feel like it still has a smaller town feel. 
downtown, like the 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 nightlife downtown literally is two two of two or three of the main streets and maybe like a four block four or five blocks on those streets where there's like you know nightclubs and bars and great restaurants and and that type of nightlife um so it's really small like in in that respect um really small but we still have awesome traffic out here (laughs) yeah Uh, but yeah i mean there's again it's always what you're going to make of it right like like austin has a lot going for it um I still technically live in Austin. My address is Austin, but I'm 25 miles away from downtown. Oh, okay. So it, it's, it, it really, it, it honestly, it feels to me like where I grew up. It feels to me like Schaumburg, a lot of strip malls, a lot of, you know, fast food joints and chain restaurants and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, a lot of cool things you can do out here. I still, I've lived here for so many years. I want to go see the bats. Still haven't gone to see the bats uh, on the South Congress bridge, but uh, that's on my list of stuff to do. But that's only like in the fall. Every time I think about it, it's like not the time of year to go do it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I talked to you for like two hours about Knights of the Republic one. So we don't have to kind of go over that, that time again necessarily, but like with KOTOR two, that must have been kind of insane, right? Because it's like, okay, we're giving this tech to Obsidian. You guys have uh, till like Christmas of '04 <laughs> to hammer out a game, and you must have been you must have been running on fumes after the previous year, right? Yeah, I mean, so when we there, there's there is a week of my life that happened. It was after we after Kotor One launched. I flew back down from Edmonton uh, because I was up there just as we were trying to get the last builds together for Microsoft. Flew back down from Edmonton, went to work. The next day, I went to the office and then I flew out to San Diego for Comic-Con because I was going to be working at the booth at comic-con manning the the kotor station because we were going to have kotor on display there and a bunch of other things i don't even remember what other games we had at the time but uh i think galaxies was there as well so it's like we had a pretty big presence and a a decent sized booth and you know it's a mini it's a mini e3 uh situation but but you're dealing with uh the public and with fans and stuff like that so i immediately so i crunched to finish the game got on a flight came home and then went right into working a trade show for four days or whatever which was brutal and then i took the next week off and i i don't remember i seriously do not remember anything i did that week and i know that it's like oh that was 20 years ago why would you remember i'm like i didn't remember what i did a week after that week like it was because it was literally it was just sleeping and decompressing like i was just trying to get out of that intense mode of finaling a, a, a game um and then there's you know the you know I, i'm just gonna say it, it's just that there's the postpartum after that you there's a there's a little bit of like i i what is my purpose now what am i gonna do you know and our because you know we didn't know yet how people were gonna receive the game if people were gonna like it uh, maybe at that point we were we were just starting to get like a good sense of it and the reviews had come in and all that but it was still nervous, right? Because, you know, I really, 
I want to make a, whenever I work on something, I want it to be something that the people are going to love the people making it love making it and that it does well for the company. You want it to do well so that you can keep doing that. Right. Um, it was always my kind of go-to thing. I, I love the game I'm working on. I want the people that are going to buy it to love it and the general public to love it. And, you know, that means that the reviews will probably be good, but then hopefully it also does well for the company. Like anyway, so there was still a little bit, you know, like it was coming down from all of that, man. It, it's <laughs> you've been through it too. Uh, it, it is probably the same feeling, you know, writing a book. And it, I think it's any creative endeavor that you've got. Uh, when you finally get to that point where you put it out in the world and let it go and it's no longer just yours you just go, I hope you like it. <laughs> um, and I got a phone call during that time off. This is the only thing I remember about this, this week off. I got a phone call and said, uh, Hey, it was the, it was the president saying, Hey, uh, I think we're going to sign a deal to do KOTOR two with obsidian. And, uh, can you, can you go down there and meet with them? <laughs> so it was, it was, that was just, that was crazy. I, I, I honestly think that was maybe two or two weeks or so after Comic-Con that we went down, me and uh, Justin Lambros, we went down to visit with the, uh, the team at Obsidian, Fergus and Chris and Chris and Darren and uh, Chris. There were three Chris's. <laughs> uh yeah and and you know sat down and met with them and they had you know they had just broken away from black isle interplay and uh we're getting things set up and they were ready to take it on it was uh and that was the beginning of a, a lot of a lot of crazy times they had already had they had a really good relationship with uh bioware and with you know greg and ray so they were able to work together pretty early on just kind of understanding the ins and outs of the good stuff and the bad stuff with building KOTOR and, um, and then identified some things that we wanted to do for, uh, for KOTOR two in terms of tech. One of the, the, the biggest thing is like, we have to have, we want to make better Jedi robes, like yeah, with the uh, hood and everything. Was, yeah. It was incredibly difficult. Like it was incredibly difficult to make sure that we could do it and still fit within memory because at that time we weren't doing, it wasn't cloth tech. That was not a possibility in what we were building. So we originally were scheduled. The original plan was to ship the game in February of 2005. And this was right about the time things were going, were changing pretty dramatically at LucasArts. Uh, you know, big shift in, big shift in company direction and a big shift in the leadership in the company. And we had gone, we had gone to E3 of 24 or 2004 sorry and it was like hey here's kotor 2 and here's all the stuff we're doing it's new and it's a new story and oh and by the way we're shipping in february we we basically set our ship date at that show and then like three weeks later we changed it <laughs> and we didn't move it back we moved it up so we moved the ship date from february of 20 2005 to December 2004 and at the time it was probably seen as a really it was a really stressful thing for everybody but the other thing that it really forced us to do immediately was evaluate what we were trying to build 
And I, I, I'm pretty certain that had we not done that, we would have probably tried to build something that was too ambitious and probably would have missed February. But, you know, who, who knows? Like we, we needed to go through that exercise. And I mean, there's a, there's a ton of stuff. I mean, you know, all about the KOTOR 2 project. Uh, I can't, I can't remember what officially it's called, but just. Yeah. The restored content. Yeah. The restored content. Like trying to bring back all of that stuff that was built all of the stuff that was recorded for the you know VO that was recorded, um, you know, entire storylines that were cut and trimmed. And, you know, we basically went through this. I don't, man, maybe this is going to be like my villain arc because I know that the, uh, <laughs> I know that there's plenty of people I've seen them. I've seen the comments about like, you know, well, LucasArts did this to the game and, they completely screwed it over and it should have been this and it was that. And, you know, it's, uh, it, there was a number of reasons why it happened. Um, but again, I mean, I think that, I don't know. I think the game that we shipped certainly was not everything that people wanted it to be just because we had so much of it that didn't, you couldn't complete certain character arcs were just left hanging um, and that was an, you know, that was an unfortunate side effect of, of all of those cuts. But I mean, you know, the obsidian team did great work just to, to make that game. And the time they did, they put together, uh, the QA team really loved going through that story multiple times. Uh, that was kind of my first litmus test of like, so what do you guys think of the game? Like, Oh, we, we, we like it. Like the story's great. And there's some great characters and some really cool stuff in here. And, you know, it, it's, it has, it, it didn't hit, I think the same way that the first one did, but I think it's a pretty worthy sequel. Yeah. I think when, you know, I was working on the book, but especially after the book came out, uh, that I did, it was like, I was sort of shocked to be reminded of how many people like KOTOR 2 is the apex of Star Wars games in a lot of people's eyes, including, I think, Sam Witwer, who plays like, you know, Darth Maul, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of characters that are voiced and does Palpatine a lot. You know, he's uh, he's like a huge KOTOR 2 fan. And I mean, half the half the, you know, Star Wars gamers, quote unquote, you know, they'll, they'll tell you KOTOR 2 is their favorite. It probably comes down to uh, talking to Kreia and how good her dialogue yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, there's customization that you guys... It seems like you were on sort of a tight leash for KOTOR 1, and, you know, there was, like, arguing about, like, lightsaber colors and stuff that you've talked about before. In KOTOR 2, there's, like, all kinds of customization. And uh, even in the DLC for, like, the first game that came out after release, like, there's a little bit more... Um, couple different lightsaber colors that get added and things like that so it seems like the success of the first game probably contributed to a little bit more leeway in the second one uh does that sound right to you i'm sure that it kind of opened uh, opened the door in a lot of ways right like there were a lot of discussion and we've talked about this before there were a lot of discussions internally with lucasfilm licensing and stuff like that we knew that it was going to be a hard sell this was a but this is an old Republic game. We were like, we're not set in this universe. We're set in an unexplored, mostly uh, period of time. So that was kind of how we were able to get some of that lightsaber customization stuff in the first game. And then, you know, just, you know, kept pushing that forward in, in the second one. Yeah, I, I, I mean, 
now, you know, even Jedi survivor has that stuff has, you know, way better, way better customization than we ever thought of then, but the light, all the lightsaber colors and things you can do and fallen order and stuff like that too. Like, it's great to see that in the time frame of the current canon, you know, the, the movie one through nine now actually has some of those different lightsaber colors in there rather than just blue, red, and green. Yeah. I wonder if the Marvel comics had something to do with that. Cause like the, uh, the comics line that launched around 2015 has done like really well and people really care about that stuff. And, and there's all kinds of random goofy lightsabers and stuff. So that that's a lot of fun. I could see how maybe that helped get permission for, for some of the fun stuff we see in like fallen order, but I don't know. Um, do you recall like, you know, it's sort of well-documented now there's like mock-up logos of, uh, age of the age of the Jedi, like for the, um, you know, the KOTOR 1 title. Do you recall, like, did KOTOR 2 have titles other than the Sith Lords that you can recall? You know, I, I 100% know that we did. Man, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to pull one out right now, and I just can't think of one of them. But, yeah, we definitely had, I wouldn't be surprised if I actually have some of those marketing mock-ups somewhere probably have some stuff that I shouldn't have. So I can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's so fun about that game is how it like leans into the horror stuff with like Darth Sion and like Nihilus being kind of just a vampire mm-hmm, with a, yeah. sort of a skeletal spaceship, uh, sort of, I really, I appreciate that aspect of, of that game. And you know, the, the Nihilus mask is kind of as iconic as, as, Revan, oh, yeah. you yeah. know, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, again, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of really great work that was done on that game, and it it probably probably doesn't get the same props that Kotor One gets, but I think it it deserves a lot of good stuff. Yeah, the the sequel hit Switch like you know probably two years after the book came out and i had plenty of healthy distance between like the time of my life where all i thought about was kotor and then just <laughs> like oh this the sequels on the on the switch i'm gonna fire this up and yeah i definitely had that moment of like is this better than the first game in like a lot of ways and it, yeah i think it comes down to do you care about like the moment to moment lightsaber combat slicing up droids do you care about dialogue do you care about being in a Star Wars movie? And I think if you care about being in a Star Wars movie, like the first game has a lot of more additional appeal that, you know, it feels like Return of the Jedi or A New Hope. But uh, the sequel is kind of like a great Star Wars novel. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, the other thing, though, like they also think about this. They had to build an entire team from scratch and made the game and shipped it in a little over a year like it's like even as i'm saying it i'm like trying to check myself and be like is that time frame right like yeah that that time frame is right actually <laughs> um like that is yeah it, it's it's kind of unheard of it's funny how like these days you would never hear like, okay, this new studio has been founded and their first project is Knights of the Old Republic 2 after the first game was like this record shattering RPG on the Xbox. 
Uh, but it had that star power. It had that uh, Black Isle Studios pedigree that, you know, people just trusted. And I guess, you know, LucasArts, you know, was a bunch of Black Isle fans and Bioware fans. So I guess, they, they, you know, you guys all knew what you were getting with that studio. But it's just, it's funny. You would never see that in a press release today, I don't think. New studio, KOTOR 2, you know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it was definitely a different time. It was a different time for sure. And one of the like one of the big headlines that I've seen like in the last week or two is you know how you know Jedi Survivor is made in like this record breaking like three year production window, and you know it's it's crazy that games used to get made in a year and be as good as Kotor too, like this all time classic. Yeah, you know? I, um, I I want to say that we actually had more dialogue to record in Kotor two. Oh, and then the first. Yeah. And honestly, we would have never been able to uh, to do KOTOR 2 in that time from all of that stuff. Like KOTOR 2 was the the LucasArts team. Actually, we, we had a small internal group of people working on KOTOR 2, which we didn't have on KOTOR 1. So we did all the um, audio and VO and music production. Uh, internally for KOTOR 2 as well as KOTOR 1. Uh, But then we also took on uh, the cinematics for KOTOR 2 uh, because it was one, it was one of the, when we went through that time period of like going through the scoping of everything um, and because we pulled the date in a couple months. So we, we identified that, you know, we're going to have to get some help here for the for the cinematics team so that the that burden's not on uh the art team at obsidian uh, we did a lot of that stuff there was yeah it was it was a, it was a much i think it was a much bigger collaboration and not to say we didn't collaborate with bioware but i think we had more lucas arts folks uh internally involved uh, than we did at than we did on kotor one we had all the same people from KOTOR 1 plus an entire cinematics team. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, like ILM and, and LucasArts worked on like the Bounty Hunter cinematics. And I guess oh, KOTOR yeah. 2 yeah. feels pretty similar to those in, in a weird way. In a way that the Bioware game, you know, was more just sort of like the characters in engine with like the pretty, pretty music and stuff. And we had, we obviously had pre-rendered stuff in KOTOR 1. Uh, and, and then, of course, the one very key cutscene that we had to we had to do in runtime because it was your character. So there was a lot like I love those types of uh, those types of challenges. It's always like, oh, this is a very sp- it's, it's weird because if I think if people outside of the games industry knew how long and how difficult it was to do some of that stuff, their minds would probably be blown because I don't think that there's. And there's not necessarily an appreciation for just, oh, hey, we're going to decide. We didn't just decide to do that cutscene in engine because we wanted to. Like there was so much time and effort and tech to make that work and to make it work every time. Like, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. And then after KOTOR 2, there's there's a million other things happening uh, as far as like the Clone Wars game and Battlefront and a lot of games came out in that little window of time. Um, you talked about the leadership shift. Obviously, a new president came in. That was when George was releasing the the DVD box sets, which were huge. 
Battlefront 1. So new scenes getting added to the films effectively, and then all this hype machine to to prepare for Revenge of the Sith. Was there like a sense that like games were becoming like more profitable? You know, these these games are coming out and they're they're selling, you know, Grand Theft Auto numbers. Was that kind of the thinking that we need to make Battlefront and put it like a trailer on the DVD and and capture that mainstream audience like Goldeneye did? Or yeah, you know the the. Uh... I mean, I can give you my perspective on it. I'm not exactly sure how this how this jives with like what the what was really going on, but I think a lot of it was seen as a missed opportunity. Um, and and you know, at a business level, you're looking at these things and going, "It's Star Wars! Like video games are huge. It's Star Wars. This is a great IP for video games. Why is this not bigger?" Like, why are we okay with selling a million units of a game, which is a lot, but that was about the time that the budgets were starting to rise too. Some of the budgets on some of those games were not necessarily KOTOR, but I'm thinking of like Obi-Wan, the internally developed game, like, and some of that stuff. The budgets on those games were kind of crazy. And people looked at that and it was by today's standards, not crazy like there are mobile games that cost multiples of what obi-wan or knights of the republic cost right but at the time there was just like it was you were starting to see these multi-million dollar budgets and then again the star wars connection and the the pedigree of all that stuff like it was seen as a missed opportunity like why are we not selling why is our target not 10 million like that like why are we not trying to sell that um and because you know the the new president like had a was a very marketing had a marketing focused background and a, a great business and it's like just was like like we need to make stuff that's going to sell 10 million units and it's going to sell to this huge group of Star Wars fans and not this smaller group that are really dedicated Star Wars fans and really want this story driven slow paced RPG stuff that was kind of the thinking uh, around the, around Battlefront, like and Battlefront One became the first was really the first one of those. Battlefront One, I'm pretty sure, broke every single sales record of LucasArts games, and then Battlefront Two broke those. It's not surprising, I guess, in retrospect, but yeah, but then I, I mean, I think that then like. The Star Wars game, it's kind of funny because like what was once record breaking and bonkers profitable, now the Star Wars games across all of the different studios, like they want those games to to be huge. Every single one of them. Every single one of them has a right to be huge. You know, it, again, that opportunity of it being Star Wars and taking that IP and doing something great with it. Making games is hard, man. If you've if you've been through it or or are close to it, like in the way that you are, like you, you get it. Uh, I think that um, a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't understand just how difficult it is and the time it takes to solve some problems or make a decision about a certain thing and a simple thing like, hey, we want to have Jedi robe. We want to make our Jedi robes better in Kotor two the effort that it took to do that. <laughs> Wait, you guys took how long? I mean, I'm talking, it was months of work to make that work. And it wasn't months by the whole team, but it was 
there were several people involved in making that thing happen. Games are so much more complicated in a lot of different, in a lot of ways than they were then. And it's just, it's just, it's amazing to me to see new games that come out and see what they're doing and see how they handled certain technology and how they did certain things. I'll give you a recent example that kind of blew me away, Alex. There's a there's a moment in uh, the Destiny 2 Lightfall campaign where there's a montage. And after the first couple of cuts in the montage, I was like, oh, wait, a sh- this is all in engine um, because, you know, they're showing your character that when they first showed my character, I realized that it wasn't uh, pre-rendered. I wasn't really paying close enough attention to be like, oh, yeah, this is pre-rendered because obviously it's pre-rendered, but it's in engine. and. I mean, I think that that cutscene in particular had some kind of mixed feelings amongst the community, but a few days or weeks after the campaign release, they put out a little mini blog and behind the scenes thing, and they specifically talked about that cutscene. And I really wish that they could have gone deeper into the making of what, like all of the things that it took to make it, because it's it's just it's a huge huge undertaking to do what they did yeah this is where osiris is training you how to use strand and not die and so you repeatedly die and it's very funny it's like the the comic relief section of the campaign right so and i and i mean i think that uh there's you know there's certain things certain things that are taken for granted i think is people just they just want to be entertained and they don't necessarily care how it happens and therefore, right, sometimes right. sometimes uh, people may not completely understand what it takes to make it happen. Um, I'll give one more Destiny example. I know I know you know I've talked about Destiny quite a bit, but the the one of the other things that really is wonderful is being able to access your character while you're loading into another mission or PvP oh, yeah. match. Think about how many games do that. Not many, <laughs> not many, no. And there are tons of technical trade-offs that I'm sure they had to manage for that. They had to make sure that their ability to, you know, stream the animation of the ship flying and allow you to access your character stuff, you know, while still threading in the loading of all the game data that they needed for the next thing you were going to see. like, that's no small undertaking. Um, Mm -hmm. And it never, I never forget just how important it is to the flow of that game. Like if you couldn't access, if you couldn't access your character while you were flying in, man, I mean, that would be, that would be annoying. And, and it's taken for granted. And it's, it's a, it's a small thing that's taken for granted in destiny, but it's just, you know, they've got it nailed now. But that problem to solve, especially when they first had to solve it, that was no, that's no small feat, no small feat. Yeah. And now they've added like the loadout Mm -hmm. saves. Yeah. All this stuff that, you know, people have kind of been asking about. We we sort of take things like the Destiny Item Manager app on your phone for granted. But for somebody who's just like on the PS4 in 2014 playing Destiny 1 or something, like they wouldn't have known about any of that. Cause well, it didn't exist at that point, but you know, cause it's like all these fan made things have come from the open API or whatever you want to call it. So it wasn't, I mean, I didn't know about destiny. I didn't manager until destiny two. Um, right. And yeah. 
someone told me about that pretty early in my time in Destiny 2. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? You're telling me I can do all this stuff without having to go to the to go to the tower? Yeah, I I got into using the app way late and uh, do it on my phone or the laptop and you really take it for granted when that API goes down yeah. for maintenance or something. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously at some point around the force unleashed or so 08 or 09 in there, you, you left LucasArts and went on to do like the Sims and other things and Sega. Right. But is that, is the timing on that? Right. Like, Oh, uh, no, it was Oh, it was end of Oh five. Um, like my very last day at LucasArts was like December, like December 16th, I think was my last day. And then December 19th, I started at Sega. Nowadays, like you'd probably take like a big vacation. <laughs> uh, I wanted but... to get in there before the Christmas holiday. So yeah, it's an interesting time. If I think back to that, I don't know if I would have made the same decision. You know, I, I, I really love my time at LucasArts. I look back on that time with 99% fondness. You know, there's always things at the job that were difficult and rough, but I look back at that with a lot of fondness. A lot of people that I met during that time frame, I'm still very, very close with a lot of great people and seeing so many folks, so many people that have gone on to do amazing stuff since they left lucas is just awesome or and some of them haven't left lucas and are doing amazing things like well i mean leland uh koya elliott is someone she is she was one of our members of the audio team and she you will see her credits in many many films because she's now like a sound sound supervising editor or whatever at at uh skywalker sound and she's been, and she's probably been there for 20 years now. But I mean, I just remember, you know, the, the brief time working together with, with her, like just how awesome she was. Dara, of course, you know, Dave Wade and Collins is another one. And yeah, yeah. I was going to bring him up. Uh, he was in the, the audio department at Lucas and uh, I've worked with him on a few projects there. And now he is just doing all kinds of things. Uh, a couple guys I worked with on Obi-Wan. Uh, one of the guys is one of the main guys behind the stagecraft work for ILM. I mean, he, you know, art director, creative director, and then his kind of background and knowledge in games and software and technology. He's now, he's now part of ILM and doing amazing things there. Like, yeah, it, it's awesome. It's, it's great. It's great to see uh, everyone that's gone on to do some, some really amazing things. And eventually you sort of uh, found your way back once or twice. So with, with Star Wars Uprising, you uh, you went to Kabam. And then I remember you saying you had like a really good experience with like the boss there that yeah, you worked oh, yeah, with. Yeah. And, um, but, but how, I mean, that was, so that was a really interesting Wild West period where, you know, Disney buys Lucasfilm for like, what, four point some billion dollars. And, and there's all this like money, all this restructuring. LucasArts is like the sort of the ugly collateral damage of that. But then you get, you get like a really amazing era of stuff popping up and them sort of experimenting with like the rebels show, which is like 
awesome. Um, and then this uprising thing. So it's a, it's a mobile game with like its own original story and characters and like the most incredible art. How, how did that feel like going into it? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to go work at Kabam um, after a stint with like an independent developer. And I, I kind of wanted to get back to San Francisco area and kind of get into the heart of uh, the game development space again. And I'm like, mobile and Facebook games are blowing up. Um, it would be great. Like I, I was really looking at it as a, uh, from a career perspective, like it'd be great to get some of that experience. Like let's go work on some of these, you know, live games and, uh, and all that. So that was one of the main, the main things about going back in, into that, into San Francisco and then into that space. And, uh, that star Wars game, it's kind of funny that star Wars game came about after I was there for a couple of years, two and a half years, something like that. And then started like, there was this internal push and I kind of got consulted a couple of times and it was just consulted just a couple of meetings with uh, a, a close buddy of mine that was like trying to lead this effort to try to pitch lucas on getting the license to do a game um we had another project that had been built on that technology and we wanted to reuse that for star wars it seemed like a a good fit for the type of game we wanted to make so that was kind of it was kind of magic how that all came together uh it was a huge deal when we when we signed that internally to to get the go-ahead and sign the contract to make that game uh, it was pretty awesome and it was pretty exciting because a lot of the folks that there was a lot of folks that had worked on Star Wars games of some type at some point that came in to, to start working on that thing. And then um, we put together put together a great team. It was a big team to make this little Star Wars RPG. We did have cutscenes in the game with Princess Leia. Um, and I think I think maybe it was set around the time of jedi so that was really exciting uh it was it was because it's a great little space to explore and try to tie in some events that happened in the films um and that was kind of a that was one of the big things and the other thing was exploring the light and dark side a little bit more and going on your quests to get lightsabers and and stuff like that so it was it was live for like two years Oh gosh, I don't even think it was that long. Not even that long. Wow. See, it came out. We launched in the beta was I think September of 2015. 2015 is when Force Awakens came out, right? Yeah, yeah, December. Yeah. So we came out in September. I think was the beta of that year, Um, and we had a bunch of launches and content through Christmas and stuff like that. Um, and then, I mean, we, the game basically got shut down July of 2016. Like, yeah, it was not a very long time. I mean, that's the story with like a lot of, uh, what shall we say? Like, like mobile live games that have, have come up in the last, like, you know, decade or so, unfortunately, but it always, it sucks when it's something like so kind of ambitious and, creatively interesting right yeah we did not we definitely did not ship everything we had planned 
we had to really cut up a lot of what we wanted to ship um, at launch. We had, there was a lot of cool little systems in that game too. You know, we had kind of that, the meta games that we, I think we did a couple of events where we had that kind of stuff that took place where you, you know, you'd go on to the planets to do missions, but then those could affect, those would affect like the influence that the rebels or the empire had in that quadrant or whatever. I can't remember. I think we just call them systems at that point, but, but like there was a lot of really cool, a lot of really cool little things there. Uh, a lot of cool story stuff. Um, you know, we had, we had a lot of VO in that game too. <laughs> like it was kind of crazy. Uh, you know, we had, it was, and it was fully voiced in every language we shipped. So we shipped like French, German, Spanish, Italian, and then Russian, Turkish, simplified Chinese, Korean, all that stuff. So it was a pretty fun project to work on. Uh, the team itself was pretty great. We had a lot of, a lot of really good folks on that team, you know, and uh, it was just, I think it's one of those things where if we would have had, I think we learned a lot, like, and we were really kind of just hitting our stride in terms of how we were building content because you need to build content quickly uh, and it needs to be, fun and stable and all of those things. Um, so it was like, we were really just understanding how to do that stuff the right way and get it out quicker. And, but we had already lost most of our players at that point. And it's really difficult to recover, you know, once like you just, you need, there's that kind of critical mass of the stuff that you launch with that people can chew through, but then those, weekly monthly quarterly updates that come out uh so that people start to you know oh i i understand like this is what i'm getting this week this is the stuff i'm going to do this month this is the stuff that's going to happen this season and we just didn't have a good uh, established content pipeline to get that stuff out yet like we we were getting there but again that was stuff that it was just a shame that we didn't have all of those you know it was difficult. It's, the games are difficult. So, <laughs> you know, making sure we have all that stuff at launch was not possible because we had a very tight window we had to launch in. The biggest bummer about stuff like that is that now the only place that that exists is in whatever YouTube content got published when the game was live. There's no other place that game exists. Uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that. It's the YouTube content and we did publish an art book. So I have I have a copy of the Star Wars Uprising art book somewhere with all of the art and the content and crazy things we we made for that game. I'll have to find that because it's actually kind of kind of interesting. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if some folks haven't scanned it and put it online. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for catching up. You know, I mean, we talk all the time while we're playing Crucible or Iron Banner, but it's fun to kind of put some of this uh, on on the record and, and fill in the gaps of that story. It's fun to look back. You know, it's fun to look back. I'm glad that I can also look forward and have some some fun stuff on the horizon.